0: Well, it's hard for us in 2023 America to identify with the reality of slavery. In other words, what it's like to actually be a slave. Think of the plight of the modern-day slave. And for those of you who are unaware, yes, slavery still exists. And actually, a statistic I saw this week said there are more slaves now than ever before in any point of human history. There's over 40 million people that are enslaved right now, whether that's sexually, whether that's for organ harvesting, believe it or not, or whether that is for just labor. The plight of the modern-day slave, you live in horrific conditions, maybe unsanitary, maybe full of disease. You have no personal property whatsoever. Your clothes, if you have them, maybe haven't been washed in months, never mind your own body. You work crushing hours and sleep little or barely at all. You have no sick days. You have no vacation days. Maybe you can't even remember what it feels like to feel the warmth of the sun on your skin. Now imagine being freed. How would you live? Would you ever have a bad day? Would you ever just neglect the common grace of what every day brings that you would take for granted? You would have abounding joy. As you feel the the sunshine on your face, as you wake up in a nice warm bed, decide for yourself what you would do that day instead of having someone tell you every minute of every day what you will do, whether you wanted to do it or not. I imagine the air would even smell differently. You would appreciate the million little things, again, that most of us just walk by every day and don't even notice. How would a slave set free live? what would that actually look like? Joyfully, thankfully. Now, imagine the lunacy of all of that, right? Trading that in and saying, meh, I think I'll go back to slavery. I think I'll sign myself. I think I'll go back to that factory that I worked at 23 hours a day in 115 degrees or give myself back to sexual slavery or what have you. Imagine lunacy of doing that. Signing back up again what you had been freed from. Imagine being freed from chains and then putting those chains back on yourself. And church, the parallel here is that sin is slavery. And we can either be freed from it and live like it, and we can live out our lives in service of it, on the other hand, and face the eternal consequences, or We live our lives in gratitude and joy to the one who has freed us from that slavery and never go back. And that's what the Holy Spirit hopefully is going to teach us all about today in Romans 6. If you're not there, head over to Romans 6. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much. We are making our way through the book of Romans. And we preach expositionally here, which hopefully means the main point of my sermon, or the main point of the passage, rather, is the main point of my sermon. And then we do the hard work of applying it. The Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts, and we do the work of walking that out. Last week, we dug into the first part of chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, turns a massive theological corner. Up until chapter 6, he had been dealing with justification, the act of being declared innocent by God from our sin. Now in chapter 6, he turns the corner to sanctification, which is the progressive work of the Holy Spirit and us, where we look more like Christ and less like sin in our actual lives. In other words, growing in holiness. You cannot be sanctified before you are justified. That's why Paul did it that way. You have to be justified first. You have to be declared innocent of your sins first. You don't work for that. It's given to you. It's a gift. And then you work with the Holy Spirit to grow in sanctification. This is our identity as we're united with Christ Jesus through faith in his death to sin and his resurrection to new life. Our identity then becomes part of who we are and what we do. We are united with Christ then to be separated from sin. That's how that works. Recall last week also that chapter 6 started with a famous question in verse 1. Paul responding to his opponent's objection, you know, so Paul, this this justification by faith you've been speaking of, are you Christians just supposed to continue in sin so that grace will continue? That's the objection, because that's what it sounded like to the Jewish Pharisees and all of that. So let me get this straight, Paul. You just keep sinning, and then God just keeps pouring out more grace. That's ridiculous. And Paul says, you're right, that is ridiculous, because that's not at all what I mean. He says, God forbid, or absolutely not, or by no means. That question alone reveals that you have no idea what you're talking about in the biblical understanding of justification by faith. And this week, he responds to a related question about the very same thing. Look at verse 15 of chapter 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Okay, here's the other related objection to justification by faith. Will Christians continue to sin because they are under grace and not under the law? Meaning, okay, because you're covered in this grace, Paul, isn't that just going to give birth to more sin? Isn't that, isn't that going to make people think, well, I'm covered. I have grace. I'm not under the law, so I can sin. Won't this just give birth to more sin? And once again, Paul says, absolutely not. God forbid By no means. We are not free from the obligation to obey God. In fact, that's how we become sanctified, right? It's a different version of the law, in a sense, a different use of the law. The moral law is still in effect, but it's not in effect for our salvation. It's in effect for our sanctification, for our growth. As we obey the moral law, we please God. That's how that works, and we grow in maturity. How does Paul respond again? same way. Absolutely not. The crux of the question, then, is this. Does being under grace encourage us to sin? And Paul says, no way. First question last week, again, should we sin in order to get more grace? No. Second question this week, because we're under grace, does that encourage us to sin? No, it doesn't. Absolutely not. It should not. Grace should actually encourage obedience, not lawlessness, not disobedience. And then in typical Pauline fashion, he goes on to prove his point. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of righteousness, which, or of obedience, rather, which leads to righteousness. Paul says again, do you not know, or King James, know ye not... That whoever you obey, you become a slave to. If you were to circle every time in this passage where the word slave is or the word slavery is, you would quickly understand that this whole passage is about slavery. Paul's using a common metaphor that his readers would instantly understand. Later on, he's going to admit it wasn't the perfect analogy, but in first century Greco Roman culture, everybody knew what a slave was because 30% of the population were slaves, they were everywhere. Slaves were everywhere. But for us, it's anything but normal, right? When we think slavery, we default to civil war. We default to the, the chattel version of slavery. In, order, in other words, kidnapping someone from another country, in our case, Africa, right? Bringing them on slave ships to our country and then owning them like pieces of property with no hope of freedom ever and complete abuse and awful conditions. That's what we typically think of when we think of slavery. We think of what happened in America, which is a terrible moral stain on our nation, which, by the way, Christians were the ones who worked to abolish slavery in this country because we knew it was against God's law. I'm not saying that Christians didn't try and justify it with God's word, but they were flat out wrong. They were Christians who also abolished it as well. But this is not what Paul's readers would think of when they saw slavery. They would think of the slaves that were all around them and those slaves were not kidnapped and brought into service. Many people actually at that time entered into slavery voluntarily in the sense of working off a debt or something like that, right? Sure, there were definitely prisoners of war and other things that came in and they were slaves as well, but completely different. Slaves oftentimes were freed as well. Either they bought their own freedom or they had someone buy their freedom for them. In America, in the Civil War, that was impossible. But here we see a difference. And so you guys need to know in context of this passage the difference of slavery, but you also need to know for apologetically, defending the faith, what the difference is. It's not the same thing. The Bible does not condone slavery. If anything, the Bible speaks against slavery in the form that we know it in America Our word here for slave is the Greek word doulos, and it means bond servant. Someone who is bonded or bound by an agreement to serve the one and only master. And you serve them, and they are your master. In verse 16, the text says that if you present yourselves or offer yourselves to anyone as a bond servant, guess what? You are their slave. You become a bond servant. If you offer yourself up to serve them, You're their slave. You're getting into a contract, if you will, to serve them. Here's a spiritual parallel. Verse 16 says that there are two choices and only two choices. If you obey sin, you're a slave to sin. If you obey God, you are a slave to God. There are consequences, of course, depending on which one you choose, verse 16 told us. Being a slave to sin leads to death. Death. But being a slave to God leads to righteousness and life. So here's the first point. We are all, every single one of us, all of us, either slaves to sin or slaves to God. We are all either slaves to sin or slaves to God. In other words, church, there is no middle ground. There is no spiritual autonomy. We are not our own bosses on either side. There is no such thing as spiritual neutrality. That's the big lie of Satan, right? The big spiritual misunderstanding of our culture, right? Just a few weeks ago, Paul, and Paul's going to counter all of that. Just a few weeks ago, we made the point that you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And if you're still in Adam, you're in your original sin. But if you're in Christ by faith, you have been justified, right? Last week, we said you're either dead in your sin, right, or you are dead to your sin. You're either alive to sin, or you're alive to Christ. See what Paul's doing here? There's no middle ground. There's one side or the other side. This week, he's saying that we have one of two masters, sin or God. Non-Christians are slaves to sin. Sin is their master. However, if you are in Christ through faith, your master is God. Your goal is sanctification. You are a slave to God. And Christians, God is our master. But do we ever think of it like that? Maybe it's just this whole language of slavery and master and all that stuff. Those aren't very good connotations, right? We think it's like, well, I don't want to be a slave to either one of those things. I don't want to be a slave at all to anybody. But remember what Paul just told us, right? One leads to death and the other one leads to life. And so the spiritual reality that the Bible tells us is there's no middle ground here, folks. You're either one or the other. We call Jesus Savior, but we also call him Lord. He is our master if we are in Christ. Flip it around. Does the average unbeliever think that they're a slave to sin? I would say absolutely not. They don't understand the spiritual reality at work. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever and you haven't come to Christ yet, thank you for coming. But that's the spiritual reality that we have. That's the spiritual reality that the Bible is telling us about. Jesus himself confirms this truth in John 8 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Luke 16 13 makes this very clear. That we serve one or the other as master using the illustration of the sin of greed. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or God and sex, or God and whatever. Fill in the blank. Christians, we used to have sin as our master. But through repentance and faith, right? Remember last week, sin is now dead to us. We have a new master, and that master and our Lord is God. Titus makes this very clear in our former slavery to sin. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, what's this, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Here's the big lie of sin, guys, that sin is just something we do. Every once in a while, yeah, we make a bad choice, or we, we sin. We make a mistake. We have a lapse in judgment. But before coming to Christ, the spiritual reality is sin is not something you do. It's all you know. And sin owns you, whether you know it or not. Sin is your master before coming to Christ. And so the first obvious application here is this question. Who is your master? Who is your master? If you're in Christ, it is Christ. But if you're not in Christ, it's sin. Do you realize this? Do you understand the spiritual reality here? This is the hard truth of this reality that's all around us that Paul's been talking about for weeks just in different ways. Adam, Christ, dead to sin, alive to Christ, all of that. There's no middle ground here. Yet, we don't ever think about that in that way in 2023 America. So which is it? Who is your master? Who are you serving with your life? And don't make a mistake. To serve yourself is serving sin. If you get up every morning and you say, no, I'm the boss. We said it's one or the other, right? There's no middle ground that says it's not God, Satan, sin, and me, right? No, you're over here, sorry. It's either God or sin. And to serve yourself is to serve sin. To serve God is to walk in obedience to Him. It's the black and white spiritual reality that we have to understand as the church in 2023 America. Becoming a Christian is a kingdom transfer. You are transferred lords. Transferred masters, you serve God now. And with that in mind, how should we then live? We should rejoice that we have been freed from that sin. Look at verse 17, and Paul says exactly that. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of righteousness... I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Once again, guys, we're supposed to feel a little bit of the weight of the spiritual despair here. Slaves to sin who can't free themselves. Slaves to sin who can do nothing about that. Slaves to sin who are headed for death. And then Paul says, but thanks be to God, because God is the one who frees us. We were born slaves to sin. A slave cannot free themselves. Is there any hope? Absolutely yes. God is the one who frees us from that slavery. Paul opens the floodgates of joy by reminding the church at Rome, but thanks be to God, that is no longer you through faith in Jesus Christ. You who were slaves of sin by Adam have now become slaves of God by faith, and now you serve God as your master, and God is an infinitely better master than sin is. Not only that, this isn't just empty box checking, he says. This is wholehearted devotion. This is obedience from the heart. Parents, we can tell the difference between wholehearted obedience and just, yeah, maybe doing it or not doing it at all, Right? Teachers, we can tell the difference between when we tell our kids to do an assignment and they do it half-heartedly or they do it not-heartedly or not at all, right? The idea here for us as Christians is whole-hearted obedience. Church, we're going for wholehearted obedience, not the bare minimum to be a Christian. But look at something else here. He says, what does, he, what does it say in the text that we are obedient to? We're obedient to the standard of teaching or doctrine to which you're committed. And so that speaks to this. The Bible is not a a collection of fairy tales of marginally accurate history. It's not the compilation of an apostolic game of telephone that they, at the end of the line, got it way wrong. Looks nothing like what Jesus wanted it to look like. The, The Bible is a standard of teaching that has been spoken by the Holy Spirit, written down by men, and preserved and protected by that Holy Spirit, and then transferred to us. We have it now. It is a standard of doctrine. It is orthodox. It is historic. It is apostolic Christianity. And there really is a rock solid standard of teaching that has been preserved throughout all time since jesus was here and most of the world doesn't realize that's what the bible is and our opponents think that is flat out not true that there is no standard that there is no truth that there is no this was not protected this is just a bunch of fairy tales about an angry god and then a guy with long hair who likes to heal people in the new testament that's not what the bible is and the bible doesn't even say that's what it is Paul's talking about the Bible. He's talking about the standard of teaching, of doctrine that you have, that has been handed over to you, that you now submit yourselves to, that you now obey, and you obey it wholeheartedly. Verse 18 tells us that since we've been set free from sin, now we are wholehearted slaves of righteousness. Then in verse 19, he says something peculiar. In verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Which, at first glance, if you read that, it's kind of like, I'm trying to dumb this down for you guys because you're not very smart. <laughs> Which it, kind of is true. I mean, it's kind of what he's saying, right? But, but this is complicated stuff. And I think part of it is like, yeah, there are some of you that understand this and some of you that don't. And I'm trying my best here, right? This is a little, little window into Paul's thoughts. But it's also the reality of slavery. And the metaphor works, but it doesn't work. So I think it's like not the perfect metaphor because, again, what do we do? Slaves to God. Okay, is there a third option? Because I don't want to be a slave at all, right? That's what we're thinking about. So Paul's like, I'm trying my best here to use metaphors that you would understand, but it still is a good and solid metaphor. This truth has to make way in their lives and our lives, They once, he says, offered their bodies and their minds to serve sin and lawlessness. That's the former self, right? That only leads to more lawlessness, he says. But now, they're in the process of presenting and offering their bodies and their minds to serve God through righteousness as they're growing in sanctification. He's like, guys, there's got to be a change here. You once just offered yourselves up to sin and serve sin with your bodies and your minds, Right? Now, if you have been justified by faith, guess what? It has to, the rubber has to meet the road. Right? Your choices, your minds, your bodies then are no longer offered in service of sin. You're offering your bodies and your minds in service of your king, of your God, Jesus Christ. And you do that by obeying him, the standard of truth from the heart. But let's remember where we started in verse 17. The, the freedom The joy, the reality of being freed from this sin, Paul explodes, thanks be to God that we were freed from sin. And so second point is this, only Jesus can provide freedom from sin's slavery. Only Jesus can provide that freedom from sin's slavery. Through his death and resurrection, he provides freedom from sin's slavery. If we jump back to John 8, we can see Jesus himself talking about this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay, got it. John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And watch this. And you will know the truth. And the truth, standard of doctrine, teaching, will set you free. Jump down to verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Only Jesus can free us from the slavery to sin. First century slaves could not free themselves unless they came up with a lot of money. People in Civil War America could definitely not free themselves. They need someone else to free them. They need someone else to literally buy their freedom. This is the concept of redemption, right? You you get an Amazon gift card as a gift, right? You plug in that glorious number on your Amazon account and then you watch your, your balance go up, right? That wasn't you. You didn't do that. Somebody gave that to you. And therefore, you have credit in that account. On a much grander scale, that's what Jesus does for us. The work that he has done, he has redeemed us. And through faith, that gets applied to our account. We are therefore freed from sin. Paul talks about this elsewhere in Galatians. Galatians 4. Four through 6. Look at this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Watch this. So you are no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Maybe that will help us understand the gloriousness of being a slave to God. Being a slave to God is a good thing. He says, not only are you a slave, you're a son. You've been adopted into his family. And not only are you a son, you're an heir. You inherit God's kingdom with God. You inherit God and you will be with him forever. So maybe that will help us kind of make our way through this analogy of being slaves. There's a transfer of masters, and we see that in Galatians as well. God is not only our master, he's also our inheritance. But as we said a few minutes ago, all non-Christians are slaves still to sin. Sin is still their master. Sometimes we see this more profoundly uh, than other times. One of the most tragic ways we see people serving sin as their master is in addiction. Addiction is the full-blown slavery to whatever sin you have, whether that's alcohol, drugs, porn, other sexual sin, immorality, impurity, shopping, health, addiction, whatever it might be. Addictions are the full-blown manifestation of slavery to sin. Perhaps you know of someone who has struggled with addiction or even been lost to addiction. That's the end of the road for slavery to sin. That's where that ends up. Schreiner, in his commentary on the book of Romans, helps us here. This does not mean that those with addictions like alcohol, pornography, or gambling, for example, never wish to be freed. It means that the desire for these things is ultimately greater than the desire to be freed from them. Did you catch that? Only God, therefore, can release unbelievers from such subjection to sin, since new desires are necessary to escape the bondage of sin. This is precisely what God has done. It's a battle of the heart, people, because addiction is a worship problem. You've just given yourself over to whatever thing you think you need to worship, and so how do you get rid of that? Not stop worshiping, you redirect your worship to where God created it to be, himself. That's what Paul says. You'll be freed from slavery. Thanks be to God. That's what it does. You fight worship with a greater worship, the one and only worship of God. This is what Scottish Presbyterian Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, when you have a new affection, a greater affection, one that is far greater and more pure right? Guess what? That other affection that you used to have for sin is gone. It doesn't even compare anymore. It is literally expelled. It is literally overflowed in your heart because of what God has done by transforming it. There's no more room for sin. There's no more room for addiction to slavery and slavery to sin because of what God has done in your heart by giving you Jesus. You are set free from the bondage of sin through faith in Jesus Christ, and he is the only one that can provide freedom from that slavery. Now, we have to be careful here. Does that mean that the moment you come to Christ, that all of your addictions just kind of fall away? That all of the power of sin then just falls away? That is a false teaching. There's a false teaching called deliverance ministries, and we have to be aware that it's out there. It says this, just come to Jesus. That's it. That's all you got to do. Then everything goes away. False. That's not true because of a little thing called reality, Right? A little thing called indwelling sin, right? Now, sometimes that does happen. We will hear of people that said, yeah, I I used to be addicted to X. I came to Christ and it's gone. The expulsive power of a new affection. That's the way it should work, right? But some sins are deep, guys. Some sins are in there. Some sins are going to be a fight. But here's the thing, as we said last time, God's won the war. God's given you everything you need to win the war. So fight it. So fight it and fight it hard. Don't just keep giving into it. Don't give into the mentality of, well, I'm just a slave to this particular sin. No, there actually are no chains there anymore. We sung it, right? The chains are gone. It's gone. Any chains that are there, you're putting them there. And how to be freed from them is worshiping the one true God and that will expel that. But that might be a fight. The secret to victory is a heart that proclaims verse 17 every day. Thanks be to God that I have been freed from sin, the power and the bondage of sin. But many times God uses life-crushing addictions or propensities to sin to show people their very powerlessness against sin and their very need for the Savior who is Jesus Christ. Right? Sometimes when he grinds us down to a powder and we're on our knees or on our face and we realize, I can't do this. But he can. Only God can free us. Only Jesus can free us. The slavery of sin. But once more, we come to Christ, right? As our text says at the end of verse 19, we are called no longer to be serving sin. We have a new master. Now we present our bodies and our minds to serve sin, and that's where Paul lands the plane. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now, excuse me, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For because the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. World famous verse there. And I just love reading over these world famous verses in context of the whole passage. I hope it makes it click even more. It certainly did for me. Paul uses his patented for argument again because he's, he's building up his case. He says why this principle is true. He says, Christians, when you were slaves to sin, you weren't obeying God. You were free, using quotes, right, in regard to the obligation of obeying God. It wasn't on your mind. You didn't wake up when you were a non-Christian and say, how can I please Jesus today? absolutely not it never happened to me and it probably didn't happen to anybody else right your your mind is on yourself when you're a non-christian before you hand that over to god right but after you do then you should wake up with that mindset that says what is god calling me today to do how am i supposed to please him today in all the things that i do so we were free in the regard in the sense of uh, obeying god it wasn't on our to-do list that doesn't mean we were free from being judged if we disobeyed him, because we will be, but we're free from the obligation, so to speak. He says, and also, while you were serving sin as your master, how did that work out for you? What fruit were you growing when you were serving sin all the time, when you had that life before Christ? Oh, oh, by the way, that fruit that you grew, the consequences that you got when you were serving sin that you are now ashamed of, He says all of that stuff how did that work out for you all of those actions last week i mentioned the reality of cringe moments from our old life many of us can relate to these random memories that come back this is like yeah i did that i was like that i said that right that understanding slavery to sin brings shame far before it brings death So yeah, we remember in those cringe moments, yeah, that's the fruit of what I got that I'm now ashamed of. That was my sin when I was in sin, the reality of it. In those cringe moments though, sometimes there's good because it's such a stark contrast or should be, we realize that is totally not me anymore and there should be some encouragement in that. When we feel that kind of visceral reaction of ugh. It's good, because we remember that's not me anymore. That's, that, that person's dead. John Chrysostom put it this way, our new life is evident in that you recognize your past life for what it was. In other words, your new life, you understand, you look back on that, and you're like, that was a dumpster fire. I am so happy I'm past that, right? Now I'm here. And so, yeah, that serves a point, right? The point is to remind us that we're new. And in verse 22, he drops the truth, of that identity change. He says, but now that you've been set free from sin and you become slaves of God, you have a different fruit and a different end. The fruit you get from slavery, right? This is why slavery to God is far better than slavery to sin, because slavery to sin just grows death or shame and then death, right? Slavery to God yields what? Sanctification. This is the goal of our lives, We obey God, and the more we obey God, the more we grow to be like God, and the more we are like God, the more joy and fruits and all of those things that come into our life, right? It gets into that general life principle of the more you obey God, the better it will generally go for you in your life, right? Not an ironclad rule because we do have reality and sin and all that, but generally, if you're going to obey God, your life is going to go better than if you don't. That's what Paul is talking about here. If you've been a a believer for decades, we see that life is sweeter. As the years go by, it gets sweeter and sweeter. We still have sin, but it should be sweeter. The joy should increase. The contentment should increase. All of that should be on the up. And that's not all, he says. The end of sanctification is what? Eternal life. That's the goal of sanctification, right? Eternal life. Our life here is a setup, if you will, for eternity. We grow in sanctification for the reward of eternity and its blessings. Sometimes we think, oh, holiness is so boring. Welp, holiness is what heaven is going to be like. There's going to be no sin there at all because God's there. And so the idea is, church, prepare yourself for eternity. Prepare yourself for the rewards that you will get for the growth that you have had in sanctification. Do that today. That's why this life is a warm-up or preparation for eternity. Sanctification, so we're tracking here, right? The fruit that we get from sin is shame. Death, the fruit that we get from obedience to God is sanctification. That leads to eternal life. And then Paul drops the very, very famous verse in 23. For, because how all this works, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's like, look at the end result here, guys. This is how this works. Sin's paycheck, what you earn from sinning, is death. However, what you earn earn by what you've been given through Christ Jesus sanctification and eternal life. Look at the comparison of that. Third point's a little wordy, but I'll say it this way. Sin produces shame and ultimately death, while grace produces growth and ultimately eternal life. Serving God is way better than serving sin. That's why. Because look at the results. Look at what sin pays out. Sin pays out death. Shame first and then death. Serving God pays out sanctification, growth in Christ Jesus, maturity, growth in all of the spiritual fruits, and then eternal life. It's the sin that produces more sin, the sin that produces shame and ultimately death, but it's the obedience that produces the blessing. So Paul says, guess what, guys? You think that if we're under grace, it's just going to encourage sin? Absolutely not. It's a, a masterclass in proving this because he says, "Guess what? If we're under grace, that should should encourage more obedience. Because look at what you get from obedience. Look at what you get from sin. Why would you sin more? This is what you get from obedience. And yeah, we're under grace. And no, if you understand it, that should not encourage disobedience. This is a challenge to them, the church at Rome, but a challenge to us." And again, the application's pretty easy to get to. Whom are we serving? What is the end result of who you're serving? If you know that sin produces shame and ultimately death, here's the bottom line common sense question. Why ever sin? If you know that's how it works, you know it's going to produce shame, you know it's going to produce death eventually, why would we ever sin? That's the mentality that we have to have. Why would we ever choose sin? It's not something that we just do anymore, church. As Christians, when we sin, we literally leave our master, Jesus, and we go to the other side, and we basically knock on our enemy's door and say, here I am, what do you want me to do? I'm ready to serve you. I'm ready to give in to whatever sin I feel. Right? You're, you're changing allegiances. right? Now, as a Christian, it's not like if you sin, your salvation is lost and gone forever. I'm not saying that. You need to be very careful with that. But you are serving the other side. You're serving the enemy of God. Why would you serve the enemy of God? Francis Schaefer put it powerfully when he said that when we sin as Christians, we are living contrary to our calling. He says, yielding ourselves to the devil and therefore producing death in the world. Instead of being life-producing machines, we are therefore death-producing machines. Why would Christians willingly do that? There's no middle ground, church. Either we're slaves to sin as non-believers or slaves to God. And once we're slaves to God through faith, why go back? Why go back in that? So what happens after you've been freed from sin and you sin? It's like you go right back into slavery. It's like you put the chains right back on. Church, when we choose sin, we're literally choosing to serve the very master that Christ freed us from. And again, we know where that ends up. So why do it? Well, one's a practical reality, right? That little pesky thing called reality. None of us are perfect. We will bump into sin we will sin. We will sin today in some way, shape, or form, right? Because we have indwelling sin, because sin's all around us, because we are not made perfect yet. So that's one practical reality of why we sin. And then we thank God for that grace. Could you imagine if it wasn't that way? Could you imagine that we weren't covered in his grace, and the very moment that we sinned, we're cast into outer darkness and death? We praise God for his grace. So one part of why we still sin is the practical reality of sin in our lives. It's still here. But the other part of this truth is sometimes we see professing Christians openly continuing in sin. Like we said last week, a Christian cannot continue in unrepentant sin. And that's the most important word in that sentence, unrepentant sin. A Christian who continues in unrepentant sin cannot call themselves, should not, dare not call themselves a Christian. If you know it's sin and you're saying, well, here I go. I'm just going to continue serving Satan, serving sin. How can you call yourself a Christian? A Christian, when we bump into sin, when it happens, when we sin, it should be this realization, what am I doing? I'm on the wrong side. Repent, turn from there. Go back here. Ask for forgiveness. Claim the forgiveness that God has given you on the cross. Turn and change by the power of the Holy Spirit. Get away from this. Go towards this. That's what a Christian does with sin. Not continue in it. Sin is a deceiver and a trap. And anytime we sin, we run the risk of it sinking deeper into us. When we sin, especially repeatedly without repenting, sin gets its hooks in us more deeply. We rationalize it more and more, don't we? You see, standing behind sin and lawlessness is our enemy. And our enemy, Satan, doesn't want you taking trips here every once in a while and then going back over here and repenting. Your enemy, Satan, wants you here as a permanent resident. Your enemy, Satan, wants you here dead. That's what he wants. We have to realize it's that serious. And so when we do sin, we need to repent. We need to grow and change in sanctification. Sin is like playing in concrete or wet concrete. One day it will harden and you will not be able to escape. And so for Christians, why mess with it? Why continue to play around with it? Sin doesn't want to give you a day pass. Sin wants you dead. Sin wants you a permanent resident. Now this is not, I'll say it again, whether someone can lose their salvation the understanding of salvation right what what was 23 just told us famously who did it god did it it was a gift free gift of god you can't lose it if it was given to you as a gift the question is did you ever really understand what that gift was did you ever really understand what the calling of a christian is did you ever really understand that you were a sinner separated from god and you needed a savior to then free you from the bonds of sin. Did you ever really get that? Did you have a true conversion? I can't wait for baptism. It's going to be 10 people that are going to stand there and they're going to say, this was me in bondage to sin. This was me, that Christ has freed me from the bondage to sin. Praise God. And we're going to rejoice with them in their testimony. So why would you sign up for sin? Why would you sign up for, watch this, Temporary slavery when you've been freed from it. It makes no sense. And so here's the simple yet profound, difficult challenge from this passage Christians are to live like freed slaves. Christians are to live like freed slaves. We need to apply the right biblical worldview here. There's a spiritual reality at work that few of us really understand. It's not something that we just do every now and then. We aren't just bags of carbon and mostly water floating around on a space rock with subjective reality of of what sin might be and not be. You know, God has a law. He has a standard. And we are actively serving someone. If you're a non-Christian, you're serving sin. And if you're a non-Christian and you're here today, thank you for coming. Realize you have chains on you. Realize that you wake up every morning and you can't help but serve sin. But also realize, thanks be to God, he has made a way through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, for you to be free from that sin. And all it takes is faith and an understanding of what he's done for you. And then you live like it. And then you get busy living like it. You have a new master, you have a new, a new Lord, and that is infinitely better than serving sin. The hope of the gospel is the hope of freedom from slavery. And that freedom comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He frees us from slavery to sin to serve him which pays much bigger dividends. So church, again, why mess around with sin? Why play with sin? Why temporarily enslave ourselves? Even if it's only for a few moments, each time we do, who knows what's happening in the spiritual reality? Sin's getting its hooks into you more and more deeply. Church, we all were once slaves, bondservants to sin. Now we have been set free from sin. And that is, Has to have an impact on how we live. It has to. Galatians 5, verse 1 says this For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the the cold, hard truth that Paul gives us in Romans 6. We pray, Lord, if there are those in here that are still slaves to sin, that they would be aware of that, that they'd be aware of the freedom that you offer through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray for that. And Lord, we also pray for us as Christians, that we would realize that sin is no longer our master, that you are our master, and you are the best master. Lord, that the the slavery that we have now, as a metaphor as that is, leads to sanctification, and in the end leads to eternal life. Not shame, not death. Serving you leads to growth, sanctification, and life. And may we desire wholehearted obedience then to your law because of what it brings to us and the glory it brings to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.